This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. Hi, Ishmael. This is Ajay Ramasubramaniam, uh, co-founder and CEO of Hindsight Ventures. I've just sent you an invite to come on as speaker. Okay, I see that you accepted. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for welcoming me. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Awesome. So, Ishmael, before I, I jump in and and bring the questions to you, a very quick round of introduction for our for our audience. Now, just of note, uh, while we have uh, people joining in live, this also goes on our, our different podcast channels on, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so on. So, a very quick round of introduction. This is the, the 22nd episode of Founders 52. And uh, today we have with us uh, Ishmael. Belkhayat, founder and CEO of Chari uh, from, from Morocco. But before that, a little bit about who we are and what's Founders 52 all about. So, like I said, I'm Ajay Ramasubramaniam, co-founder and CEO of Hindsight Ventures, which is a very Africa-focused startup accelerator, entrepreneurship enabler in the, in the continent. While we're headquartered in India and go under the brand name of Startup Rezo in other parts of the world, about three years back, we carved out Hindsight Ventures as a brand that is exclusively focused on entrepreneurs in Africa building for the continent. Uh, we run our own branded programs. We operate programs for partners, which includes large corporations, uh, development finance institutions, uh, global or international universities having a, an interest in the African continent and, and governments as well. Uh, Founders 52 is something that we thought of um, in, in April last year or April this year rather because we believe that storytelling is a very powerful medium uh, to, to inspire people and entrepreneurship is the way forward for emerging economies because that is what is going to, to create jobs, bring about economic development, uh, solve challenges through use of technology in many cases without use of technology as well. And under Founders 52, our, our vision is to bring one entrepreneur from the continent every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. East Africa time, to share his or her journey of, of building their, their venture. And, and touching upon uh, a few things, I mean, while the problem that they're solving for is, is, of course, important and central to the conversation, but also bringing other things in terms of how they went about building a team, how they went about scaling, raising capital, getting into new markets, pivoting story, if any, uh, if they completely moved away from an original business line that they thought of. So a lot of things which go into the journey of, of building a, a venture. And so far, we have had uh, 21 really amazing entrepreneurs from different parts of the world. And today we have with us our first entrepreneur from, from Morocco, uh, Ishmael. Thank you so much for making time to, to chat with us, speak with us. And over to you to briefly introduce Ishmael, the, the individual, uh, the entrepreneur will come to. But who is Ishmael? Uh, what's your background like uh, before entrepreneurship? What were you up to? So very quickly, over to you. Good. Thank you again for, for the invitation. It's a, a real pleasure to be here with you and uh, happy to be the first uh, Moroccan uh, to come to this uh, series of uh, 22 episodes so far and many more to come. Uh, so myself, again, the person uh, born and raised in, uh, in Morocco, uh, Rabat, which is the administra administrative capital. I, I, I went to a French high school. So right after my baccalaureate, which is the A-level degree you get after high school, I ended up going to uh, 
Paris, France, uh, where I, I did my undergrads. Uh, and uh, then I went to the U.S., uh, upstate New York, Cornell University, for my grad studies and uh, ended up starting my career uh, with uh, BCG, so the, the Boston Consulting Group, as uh, a consultant. Uh, first, I was in the office of Paris, uh, and then uh, I became one of the first men on the ground to open the office of Casablanca. And that was uh, 20, uh, yes, 12, 12 years ago. I spent about uh, three, four years in, in, in BCG and then decided to, to become an entrepreneur. Uh, so I am uh, what we call a repeat founder. Uh, my, my first company uh, was um, and is still uh, a ground transportation company in Morocco. It's called Chauffeur.ma. Uh, and in the meantime, it got acquired by uh, Avis, uh, uh, the car renting company. So Avis Rental Cars acquired the company and is today uh, running it. Uh, so after this first uh, exit, I, I uh, started copying models of startups that worked in other countries. Uh, and I, I brought to Morocco uh, the first property portal. Uh, that quickly became the leading uh, portal used to for for users to find their housing, and that was also a successful uh, startup that got uh, acquired by um, Property Finder, which is a group of portals uh, based out of uh, Dubai, and that is today a, a unicorn. Um, and then in the meantime, I got uh, married with. Uh, uh, so my wife, who's uh, who used also to be a consultant, she she used to work for uh, McKinsey, uh, and uh, together we got two uh, kids. They have they are today four and five, and after the second kid, uh, it was too hard for for her to handle, uh, you know, uh, two babies at home and uh, work for for McKinsey. So together we decided to to get a third kid, but this time a digital kid. And we called it Sherry, which is the, the company I'm currently running as a CEO. And so Sherry is our third digital kid that we started with my one. So now I'm back. Anyway, so yes, so Sherry is, uh, is today the company I am, I am running and I'm here to tell you more about it. So that's me as a person. Ishmael, thank you. Thank you so much for that, uh, the, for that background. And before we come to the, the third kid that, your wife and yourself are, are are raising right now. I think BCG or or being in a big four uh, can act as a as a good uh, breeding ground in terms of getting your head around uh, a whole lot of, of things uh, before kind of embarking on the on the entrepreneurial journey. But at the same time, uh, taking a closer look at your at your LinkedIn profile and and the companies, the ventures that you spoke about, I think uh, being a serial entrepreneur in in consumer internet as a space is one thing but one more thing that i i noticed on your linkedin profile is the is the web incubator that you that you operate uh, do you want to kind of uh, shed a little bit of light on that as well yes of course of course so again when when i moved with bcg to morocco and decided to quit bcg it was to become a, a tech entrepreneur and and you know myself i am a uh, a person uh, you know that loves to be to be free and to be able to to travel around and uh, uh, i have a lot of uh, 
passions. I've skydived more than 200 times. So I had to find a solution basically to, to be able to uh, still travel and be free while uh, becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, so my, my, my first uh, kind of business was to uh, team up with uh, amazing local entrepreneurs uh, with, uh, f- to whom I was providing a kind of uh, environment, ecosystem, and they were basically running the, the, the operations. And the reason why I decided to do that is because back at that time, the, 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 the size of the market in Morocco was... Uh, too small to basically uh, run a company that has a, a, a huge back office. And many companies couldn't afford to have, uh, you know, a tech team, a marketing team, uh, a back office team. So I just felt uh, maybe we could build one real great back office team that we could um, um share between many entrepreneurs and many startups and that was the model of the incubator which is basically we provide to great entrepreneurs all the all what they need to start and they come with their execution their time and their efforts um and with hindsight it was an amazing experience mainly because uh, we incubated a lot of of amazing entrepreneurs we learned from a lot of uh, spaces and we created synergies between uh, many of them, uh, allowing the, us also to, to save on many costs that were basically shared between everyone. And this is how we, 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 we could make a few companies become successful, mainly at a time when it was very difficult to raise funding. We are here speaking about 2000. 14, 15, when back at that time, uh, the only way to raise funds was from uh, a kind of uh, business angels who used to ask for 51% of your company, <laughs> mainly because, uh, again, the startup uh, mind wasn't, wasn't there. Today, obviously, things have changed, uh, uh, but back at that time, things were different. So that's the story behind the, 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 the incubator. And this incubator has helped a lot because I, again, was copying models that were working uh, somewhere else. And um, a little bit like what Rocket Internet is doing. Uh, For those who know uh, Rocket Internet, it's an amazing company that takes models that have worked in the US and bring them to Europe. And then models that work in, in developed countries and try to copy them in developing countries. And so they are, for instance, behind Lazada. And I was very fortunate because I spoke while I was raising funds uh, for Shari with the, 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 the founder of Rocket Internet co- called Oliver Somewhere. And I told him about my story before uh, creating Shari. And uh, he immediately decided to invest in Shari because he understood my background and understood that I was someone coming from the tech environment and the startup environment and understood that obviously by by trying a lot of things, by failing in a lot of things, you definitely become a, a better entrepreneur. No, thank, thank you for that, uh, Ishmael. And I'll also thank you for bringing the, the topic of uh, something like a, a rocket internet and 
the reason I, I i mentioned that is because if you look at emerging economies uh, there is there is no one size that fits all and for actually nurturing entrepreneurs in the early days like you say i mean uh, having shared services and shared services starts right from shared co-working spaces but also shared services in terms of uh, resources uh, i think it it goes a huge way or a long way in terms of enabling the the startups enabling the the first set of uh, ventures that are getting built in an economy and and as you go along you'll have several more ishmaels coming around uh, who 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 now are are experienced in in building ventures and and that's how probably a uh, longer run uh, ecosystems kind of grow but but coming back to the point of something like say a, a rocket internet i think people always keep uh, comparing apples and and oranges which is which is unfair because every market is is unique in in itself and having been to a few few hubs a uh, few emerging ecosystems in the in the african continent i can say that uh, probably accelerators are not the the antidote or the solution to to all problems i think venture studios have a have a huge role to play uh, bringing models which have worked in in developed markets but models only as far as solution to a problem but i think the the execution capability needs to kind of come locally the ideas need to be tweaked locally and that is where these venture studios and incubators play a, a very uh, meaty role and particularly if it is founded by entrepreneurs like yourselves who have had the first hand experience of of building ventures and scaling it uh, particularly in consumer internet i think those uh, that is something which will do a lot of good to lot of emerging ecosystems uh, in in emerging markets whether in africa or or going anywhere in the in the global south so that's that's a good start to this conversation bringing us to to chari retail is broken and you got to tell us more about it retail is broken in in any part of the world and particularly if you go to emerging markets in the global south i think it is heavily fragmented what got you excited about fixing this this broken problem yes yeah, so so myself i am on uh, working on fmcg retail so fast moving consumer goods uh, cpg in in uh, so in developed countries the fmcg distribution goes through what we call the modern trade and the modern trade are basically the big supermarkets the the chains such as uh, i don't know uh, tesco in in the uk or walmart in the in the us but when you go to uh, to developing countries such as morocco or africa in general or even india south east asia and south america 80% of the of the of the sales of fmcg products goes through the small local no name independent mom and pop shops and each country has its own names uh so uh, they are called the dukas they are called the hanuts they are called bakaras uh and these people are basically part of our communities of our life they are our neighbors they are part of our culture and if uh, nothing is done they will end up being replaced progressively by the big chains the same way it has been done in Europe and in the US in the 70s in the 80s so today we have a, 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 a powerful weapon to help them survive and to help them fight against competition coming from the modern trade and it's called digital digitization so what is giving me this passion and what is giving me this motivation to to as you say fix the broken retail 
is by knowing that by giving them the right tools, they will survive and even get stronger. And these tools are basically apps to help them get their procurement, to help them uh, handle their stocks, to help them handle the credit they give to their end users, to help them become uh, financial services providers, and so on and so on. And, and, and again, uh, when you are a multinational in Europe and you want to sell your goods, it's very easy to distribute them through the big chains because you only need to know the uh, buyers at the central purchasing bodies of, the, of these big uh, retailers. But when you are in developing countries and you want your goods to be distributed, you need to speak with as many shopkeepers as uh, shops they are in the market. So it becomes a nightmare. So we believe that tools are at the same, digital tools are at the same time helping the suppliers to better distribute their goods and to have more data about what's going on and have more visibility on where their goods are sold. And at the same time, you are solving a pain point of the shopkeepers who, again, uh, were very traditional and needed to get digitized and start using uh, technology to improve their daily life. Seconds, 15, 20 seconds. Yeah, so basically I was concluding by, by the fact that uh, today we are solving two pain points for the multinationals and the shopkeepers. And what the shopkeepers need are, again, tech tools to improve their daily life. And that's exactly what we are providing them with. No, that's 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 amazing. I think uh, you you covered. I mean, what you're doing at Shari is is covering both ends, right? I mean, the the mom and pop stores or the corner stores or or the unorganized retail, you're you're solving their challenges, but also you're you're providing the 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 digital storefront for the large FMCG companies for distributing their goods. I mean, one of our friends, one of our our portfolio companies in 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 East Africa, Duka. Uh, they're pretty much on on similar lines uh, as as to what uh, you have been doing at, at at Shari, and it is it is relatable, but at the same time in a in a fragmented market uh, across across Africa, I think it's a, it's a huge problem to solve for because I think while on one hand, if you look at the the mom and pop store or the or the retail stores, uh, I mean supply chain or or helping them manage their inventory is a big problem, but also for for these uh, these large FMCG companies, uh, becoming a, a channel of sorts to get their products out there on the storefront, I think that's that's a, a bigger problem to to kind of uh, solve for. What were the the teething troubles? I mean, when you started out, what were the the first barriers to entry that you that you came across, and you found it to be a real challenge where you had to probably put your your consulting hat on top and come up with, with a model to, to solve for? What was those those barriers to entry? Yeah, so so, so first of all, the, the model of Sherry exists in, uh, in all the developing countries, and you have amazing players all over the world. I think the one of the biggest is based in India, and it's called Udan. There is another one in Indonesia called Ula, doing really well. Then you have in Africa many of them, in South Africa many of them. So it's, it's a model that that is today applicable to to various uh, to to developing countries so again obviously it has entrance barriers uh, and myself i i had to overcome many of them not sure that i have used my my strategic consultant skills because let, let me 
share with you that uh, as a consultant, people, uh, I mean, uh, the, the consulting firms uh, teach you how to, to be perfect, how to prepare amazing slides, how not to make any mistake. And the, and, the, and the entrepreneurial life is the exact contrary. You need to move fast. You need, ac- you need to accept that everything you're going to do won't be perfect. So the skills that I used to have, <laughs> you know, I had to forget about them and try to become another person sending emails without writing, reading them five times to make sure there is no, no mistakes. Uh, and now to, to get to your question, uh, again, Many, many, many uh, problems I faced, and and the, the the biggest one is that my users, who are the shopkeepers in in Morocco, are not tech savvy at all. So when I came uh, to see them with an amazing app that had a lot of features, I quickly realized that uh, they couldn't use it for many reasons. One, they had the old smartphones. When myself, I use the last libraries that were not compatible with the, with their smartphones. Then I realized that there were lacking space in the smartphone, so I couldn't install my very heavy app. Then I realized that some of them were not able to read all the nice text I was putting there. Uh, then I realized that for some reasons, the size of their fingers was bigger than mine. So when I was building my app, I was thinking that everybody has the same ability to click on small icons, which is not the case of this uh, population. And then I realized that they are kind of lazy people uh, in the sense that they may open your app to see your catalog of products, but then never go through the transaction and prefer to call you on the phone or send you a voice message on WhatsApp. And I had to overcome all of that by sending people on the ground, uh, training them on how to use the app, uh, making sure to raise the prices on the phone to tell them, hey, you would save some money if you use the app, uh, by giving promotions that work only on the app, uh, by sending uh, automatic messages on WhatsApp, telling them, hey, thank you, we've received your message, but did you know that you can do it by yourself? By And we send videos uh, on how to use the app and so on and so on. And this obviously takes a lot of time. So it took us, uh, uh, I mean, one client in between the time we sign him up and the time he becomes fully autonomous and independent on the app, it takes up to six months. And this is a huge entrance barrier from one side. And on the other side, there is another entrance barrier, which is meeting with the suppliers and convincing them that they have to work with you when you are a small player. They are afraid that you disturb their pricing. They are afraid that you make them lose their time. So it's not always easy to be able to convince a multinational to work with a startup. But again, by staying on the market, by uh, sowing some credibility through fundraising, uh, by doing some uh, uh, press releases, you gain, again, credibility, allowing you to convince the, the suppliers to work with you. And uh, and that's how it works, basically. No, great. Uh, thanks, thanks for that, Ishmael. And of course, I mean, uh, on both ends, the the challenges are are very uh, very different. On one hand, uh, getting the 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 user on board, the user being the the merchant or the or the shopkeeper, and whether it's a, a UI UX problem or uh, or 
just the, the the broader usability i think that's a different challenge compared to when you look at the the, the larger fmcg guys uh, onboarding them is a is a completely uh, a different nightmare of working with a large organization having their own procurement systems having their own other it systems and trying to plug it into into an app i think uh, it does does require and particularly when you are probably the first entrant to the market or it's a it's a new product or new technology coming in i think that resistance from from the larger organizations uh, is is definitely a, a realistic one and it's it's difficult to overcome who was the who was the the bigger champion for you so when you when let us look at the the side of uh, the fmcg companies or or cpg companies who was the bigger champion for you within those organizations to get your thing done and the reason i am asking you this is because for any of our our listeners entrepreneurs who are who are building b2b software or who who are selling enterprise software saas whatever it is to to large organizations i think it's very important to be able to understand uh, who your your key stakeholder Uh, or ideal customer profile within that organization is because you could be banging on a wrong door for for donkey's years and you'll you'll never be able to go through so when it comes to to retail when it comes to cpg and in case of chari who was that champion that you found inside the organization and how and what got them thinking to come on board your platform uh so w- when you sell cpg you you, you need uh, to have so you need to be what we call a, a one stop shop which means that your clients being the shopkeepers need to find in your app everything they need for their store so obviously within the the the, the your catalog you have non performing inventory for which the rotation of goods is slow and then you have performing inventory and within within this performing inventory there are some goods that are very important and usually these goods you don't make many any money out of it but you need them to be within your catalog because they help you open the invoices usually the users start buying these goods and then feel okay i've bought this why don't i add this and this and this it's like you going to the supermarket for some milk and adding other things while you arrive to the cashier so the 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 what helped us was basically get these kind of commodities that are basically sugar table oil flour uh, while making sure not to lose too much money on them because obviously they are very bulky they are the margins are very slim on them and the cost of logistic is very high so you need to have them but make sure that you don't lose too much money and once you do that you need to convince big brands and the big brands are well known it's people such as png if you have png in your catalog and you are able to sign png because they are very famous in the F, in the cpg distribution as being uh the brand so png is the equivalent of ferrari in the car industry or of goldman sachs in the banking industry once you have them on board all the others want to come work with you because they feel if bng has chosen these guys then it means that they are serious guys and we also want to be in the party so again you right uh, you need this uh, big brands because they bring you the credibility you need to 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 bring the followers who are usually doing whatever these big brands are doing 
of course and, and many of these big brands have have spent several years uh, se- several several hundreds of thousands or millions of of dollars uh, building their their network building customer loyalty and and i think uh, like like rightly pointed out i think uh, getting that that one brand to to come on board i think it uh, it it makes the the path easier to to get on board the the other brands but this space was downloaded via spacesdown.com visit to download your spaces today yeah i think uh, you you need to kind of really understand how how do these uh, fmcg companies works how do these cpg companies work and you need to be the the one stop one stop shop like you like you rightly said for them to be like really convinced that this is this is a a route that they want to kind of uh, adopt now you do not come from a from a hardcore uh, cpg or or fmcg background as such uh, as as ishmael now uh, you need several skill sets for for building uh, different kinds of companies and in this case where you're looking at uh, at cpg you're looking at fmcg uh, you're looking at disrupting uh, trade and distribution uh, you also need to to have people who are who are the the sleeves rolled up on field kind of on field kind of guys you need people who who know how to kind of uh, look at uh, transportation logistics warehouse there are there are many things so it is not just a simple app uh, as as it may be from an interface standpoint but from a business standpoint you need different skill sets what was your your founding team like and and where did you find your co-founders yeah yeah so so definitely um there are some businesses that requires uh, people from the ground who have an extended experience in the in the market you are trying to disrupt and in my case not coming from cpg from fmcg background was a big issue and i had to get surrounded by people at least and i'll give you one example uh, my my one of, so my business is not a business about selling because again clients are everywhere we have 200,000 shops in morocco nobody is offering them what we offer and it's very easy to buy, to sell to them what is very difficult is to be able to buy at a good pricing and in order to buy at a good pricing you need to convince the suppliers and the suppliers to be convinced they need to know you so i had and one of my first hires and he's today uh, like my co-founder in the sense that he he's uh, uh, he has an esop with us and he is probably the most important people in the in our company is our purchase director who is the person that has the relationship with all the suppliers and this relationship he built them around uh, through his background working for many multinationals uh and when you come and when you used to he used to work for png by the way so when you come from png you've you know everyone in the space so we needed someone from the fmcg and then he brought us a lot of other people so this is an example then we needed obviously as 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 a myself a founder i needed a co-founder that was an engineer uh and someone who would be able to help with the tech so again uh myself and i'm advising anyone listening to us uh i don't think it's a good idea to go by yourself uh, to to run a startup and we we've seen the statistics the most successful startups are, have usually two to three uh entrepreneur uh, co-founders and the reason is very easy you can't be 
doing many things at the same time. And uh, uh, if you want to raise funds, it's a, it's a full-time job. If you want to build a product, it's a full-time job. So, and, and you need at least someone to raise funds and someone to build the product. Uh, and, and my point here is make sure that whoever you choose as a co-founder is someone that is very different from you. This may sound uh, paradoxal, but reality is uh, the person you will be working with has to be complementary with you. He or she has to be different from you. He or she has to cheer you up when you are down and vice versa. He or she needs to be willing to do things that you want, don't want to do and vice versa. She, he or she needs to be passionate by other things than your passions. So on the paper, this person shouldn't be, shouldn't be your friend. It's just, it should be someone that is complementary. And this is how you should choose your co-founders. No, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's very important, and and a lot of times, uh, the, one of the more one of the more difficult uh, things when you when you chart your your entrepreneurial journey is whom do you have on your side, and it's 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 a decision that that you do not make by uh, by emotion or or anything else, uh, but it's more to do with for for building a successful company, you need kind of uh, different skill sets. And that that best skill set that is suited for success may not come from your best friend or someone you've known for decades, but someone who probably brings the the, the kind of requisite experience, expertise, whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you 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 get it right, but more often than not, it's it's not a not a, a easy decision to make who you you bring on board as as your. And when I say co-founder, it does not necessarily have to be someone who has uh, skin in the game by having equity and kind of pools in the finances but but someone who is a part of the co-founding team who's there with you on on day zero i think he or she is uh, is a very kind of crucial uh, member element of your of your team and and like in your case in, in case of chari you you needed someone who who understands procurement someone who deals with uh, fmcg brands because your business depends on on the, the kind of stock inventory that you guys are able to to kind of maintain and and on the other hand, uh, the kind of network that you're able to bring on the on the field as well. So, thank you for for bringing that. Who were your your earliest backers? I mean, you definitely brought the the, the background uh, as an entrepreneur, and you spoke about uh, uh, the the co the, the founder from from uh, Rocket Internet. I think Rocket has has a very solid pedigree in in consumer internet. But who are some of the the earliest backers of of Chari, and Wearing the the hat of a founder and relationship with with investors, what value did your earliest investors bring to the table to to Chari? Um, so myself, um, my first investors, I got them through um, participations in in acceleration programs and the contests. So my first investor was um, is. Uh, Orange, the, the French telecom operator. And uh, back in 2021, they organized this contest of the best African startup, out of which I remember 500 applicants tried their luck. And Shari ended up uh, ranked in the top three, which allowed us to basically uh, get a founding from them. 
So uh, this seed funding brought us some money. I believe it was $125,000. But on top of the money, it brought us uh, credibility because having orange and coming from Francophone Africa is very helpful. And also they started sharing with us their list of clients who are basically shopkeepers. And they also ask us to start distributing their uh, scratch cards and their top-up. And obviously, on top of the money, they brought credibility and also some business. And then we used them uh, to go apply to other accelerator programs, including um, uh, Plug and Play. Uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's a, a, a US-based uh, acceleration program that uh, basically allows you to uh, get trained uh, and uh, also get some funding. So we got some funding from, from uh, PNP. And then we were founded by a French telecom operator, uh, a Silicon Valley uh, investor, uh, and we decided to apply to Station F in Paris. So we went to Paris, um, understood better the startup world, met with amazing French founders, uh, heard about the Y Combinator and decided to apply to Y Combinator by saying, hey guys, uh, we got this investment by Orange, this investment by Plug and Play, we are today in Station F and we would love to come to, to the Silicon Valley. And uh, again, we ended up getting uh, YC in our cap table. YC then brought with them Harvard University and we are very proud to say that uh, we have people such as Harvard University in our cap table and Harvard has even written a business case about Shari. So if you go to hbs.shari.com, you'll be able to read an amazing business case written by the University of Harvard about Shari and today taught to the MBA students of Harvard. That's awesome. Some of the names that you that you rattle off, they the pretty much pedigree in, in in themselves. But I think the the Harvard Business Review uh, case study is a is a is a good one for for me and and us as an organization to make note of. But I'll go right back to the the beginning of the the answer that you started with, and and this is for the for the benefit of of founders who have tuned in today and many who would probably hear this over the course of next several weeks months as the as the podcast is. Is up there on the on the internet. I think you you made a very valid point about uh, accelerators and and particularly the the corporate backed one, like whether it is Orange, uh, whether it is the the plug and play one. I think uh, all of these they they bring um, a, a solid legitimacy to the to the company. And there are a lot of people, a lot of naysayers across the world who keep questioning the 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 legitimacy of of an accelerator and. If, if an experienced founder like yourself, who is a multi-time entrepreneur, if he is kind of uh, giving a testimonial to this, I think it's it's a very important point for entrepreneurs to make note of as to why they should try getting into an accelerator because it not only gives you several tools to succeed, but in the early days, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, visibility that it, it gives you, the stamp of approval that it uh, gives you, it's not about the money. I mean, if you end up getting some some money, if you end up winning those prizes, that's that's fine. But getting accepted through a competitive process as the 10, 12, 20, whatever the number of startups are, which get into a cohort run by a large corporate, I think there are a lot of things that you that you get to learn about 
building a company the kind of network that it opens out is opens up is is phenomenal so i think uh, in in early days uh, to the point that you're making ishmael uh, getting into into an accelerator uh, and the kind of difference that it makes and and as you go along uh, as you go along the the other names that kind of uh, come by whether as someone on the cap table someone who is who's getting into a strategic partnership i think uh, partnership collaboration uh, brand association i think those are very strong uh, aspects which which help and go a long way in in venture building in many cases it may not even kind of result in a in a check but having that partner on your side so for example if someone is building in retail and if a a png or a unilever kind of comes on board as a as a strategic uh, partner in in one way or the other uh, extending credit lines or or whatever it is uh, i think the the kind of uh, legitimacy that they're able to establish and the, the the boost of of confidence that it gives your business it's kind of uh, un, unprecedented so thank you for making the point on those kind of collaborations alliances and uh, particularly talking about accelerators it has been helping us earn our bread and butter for the past 10 years and i i i uh, i I, com- i completely agree to to what you're saying as to why startups should lean on on accelerators in terms of the the early growth that they that they have so great great points there uh coming on to coming on to the the uh, next question how many markets are you are you present in right now and for and like you said right up front right there are there are companies which are, which are doing uh, similar stuff in in other parts of the african continent other parts of the world how easy or difficult would it be for for a company like like yours to enter into a new market within the same region within the continent yes thank you for this um question uh so yes you write about about the 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 the, the incubators and accelerators i advise anyone to to try to get in and they are bringing more than money and yc is the best example they are very expensive but believe me their cost worth it no to to get your question <clears throat> um the um uh so, so 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 sorry i received a message so i i i i lost my the 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 line say, 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 can you just re- quickly repeat it hello yes yes sorry i received a, a, a message can you just remind me the question okay uh, what what were you able to hear yes yes i can yeah say say that again what did you say about the question what was the question Yes, Ajay, are you there? Uh, Ishmael, can you hear me? Yes, yes. No, I can okay. hear. I, no, I can uh, hear. Yeah. Okay. So my question was for a business like Chari. You did mention that there are similar companies that exist in the continent and also in other parts of the of the emerging world. So my question to you was the markets in which Chari is present right now. Oh, yeah. Now, sorry. No, yeah, yeah. So, 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 first of all, um, uh, first of all, one thing I would like to say, but the 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 you know when when you have uh, uh, investors from the US uh, they ke- they keep asking you to expand especially when you are in africa they they want to limit the the risk related to being in one single country and they want you as a portfolio company to be in a, in a various countries so in case there is instability in one country you can still remain alive 
Uh, and uh, but these guys believe that uh, moving from uh, Morocco to uh, I don't know uh, uh, Tunisia is as easy as moving from New York to uh, Miami. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, New York is a, is a, is is a state. Uh, Miami is uh, is another state. It's Florida, but uh, it's the same language. It's the same currency. It's the same legal framework. It's the same kind of clients. It's the same. Uh, culture and so on and between uh, morocco and mauritania it's uh, the, everything is different so uh, you have to make sure to explain to your investors that it's not as easy uh, to to expand as it is in the, within a state in the us that's point number one point number two is we had to expand so we expanded to tunisia and ivory coast through two different uh, line of businesses we have. Line one is the e-commerce, and line two is the fact that we provide the shopkeepers with, with, the, with the bookkeeping app. So with, with the e-commerce, it, it's quite difficult because you need to rebuild your uh, network of stores, you need to rebuild your network of suppliers, you need to rebuild your logistics, and to be frank, it wasn't easy at all, and the model is not as easy to duplicate as you may think. Uh, and it's uh, and if you don't have local partners and if you don't have local entrepreneurs, it's almost impossible to go uh, greenfield. And this is why in Ivory Coast, for instance, we had to do an acquisition. But this is for e-commerce. When it comes to our SaaS uh, business called uh, Carney, which is a, a bookkeeping app for shopkeepers, that was much easier because we could acquire uh, users remotely we could handle the customer care remotely and we could keep our back office in Morocco to handle other countries from Morocco. When for e-commerce, we needed people on the ground and that was a nightmare. So we expanded to, to again, we are today in three countries, but if I had to do it again, I would focus only on those line of businesses that can be handled directly from your headquarter. Got it. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, when, when you look at uh, investors and particularly from whether it is New York or, or Silicon Valley, I think uh, the, the blitz scaling or, or scaling across regions, geographies is something that uh, there's, there's a lot of, of pump on the on the founders. But in case of, of many businesses, like you said, right, I think it's it's not just like a, a copy paste approach. I mean, if you go back 10 years, a lot of the, the founders in India uh, who would have either come back from the U.S. or replicating kind of models from uh, North America to India would just kind of blindly try and adopt the 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 same method, but it just wouldn't work. They it it was only after two or three cycles of companies kind of falling through the cracks and companies not really be able able to make it that founders realized at least the next set of founders that there was no point in just uh, having a copy paste kind of an approach because. Uh, even though, I mean, India is a large country and we are divided by states, but uh, even when you cross borders of, of states, uh, uh, things are different. It's it's not the same. So what may work in one may not work in another. So when it comes to a context like Africa, uh, I think uh, even in, if, if, if it's a, a smaller country or a country where there's a porous kind of a, a border, when you're looking at doing a mobile internet company, it's, it's not as easy or simple to cross borders and, and continue doing business as good. So... I think those cultural nuances, those business nuances is, is something that 
investors who do not have a local presence will will never understand and and that's why probably for a lot of companies uh, their ability to attract uh, the kind of capital that they potentially should doesn't happen because uh, the numbers aren't there to show but the numbers aren't there to show for for a specific reason so that brings me on to my my follow on question what would your advice be to founders so in your case you're an experienced guy uh, before starting shari you have done uh, other ventures you have you've spent time uh, outside the continent as well and all of that founders who are probably uh, not sailing in the same boat as you when they kind of encounter or come across situations where uh, it's it's a number game the business is good the business model is good but then the numbers are not there to show for or that founder doesn't really know how do i tackle this question where the investor is asking me about what's my plan to scale uh, how would you how would you kind of uh, mentor or talk to founders who are facing this problem from their investors so first i would say to the to the entrepreneurs that uh, those who succeed are are not the Uh, the most intelligent the fastest the wisest the strongest the richest there are only those who uh, never give up and those who remain at the end and those who uh, accept to be improving so if you feel that you are not having traction on something it means that you haven't reached or haven't gotten your product market fit and it means that there is something to be fixed uh, so um when you handle an investor that doesn't see that doesn't see traction you need to show him that uh seed investment or pre-seed investment is not uh, is not a science it's it's so so sorry for i am uh, i am back can you hear me yes please yes you're audible yes yeah so you have to show that it's a, it's an art that requires passion and that requires energy and ambition and you have to show him that you are able to keep adapting and keep uh, learning uh, uh, and that whatever money he is going to send you will be used to create value so again obviously if you are raising series a or series b you need a, you need you need traction and without traction you won't be able to do anything and if you if you don't have a clear um proof of concept you won't be able to raise uh, a, a late stage uh, uh, series mainly because uh, even though you are a superstar but as an early stage entrepreneur always remind remember that the investors are more looking into the startup himself and his ab- ability to go over all the challenges than the the business itself because they know that no matter what uh, between what is presented in the slides and between what is in the business plan and reality there will be a, a, a huge gap Uh, and what they want to see is how the entrepreneur is able to basically face all the challenges that he will be meeting uh, on his way so that's to me the best uh, advice is guys start by believing in you start by believing in your abilities and once you do that you will be able to convey this positive en- energy that will make the others believe in you as a person no matter what your business is
absolutely absolutely i uh, i agree with you i think believing in the in the person is is the one single biggest factor i think uh, ideas can fail ventures can fail but uh, people don't fail the biggest capital that any nation has is is the human capital and uh, people believe in people and people invest in people so as long as you as a founder are are convinced about the the business that you're building businesses undergo pivots businesses take completely different route uh, i mean uh, all of us having been through covid i think businesses that were unable to pivot or businesses that were unable to kind of uh, get on to digital and offer newer forms of customer experience were the ones which kind of uh, met the dust so i think if as a founder you exhibit those traits and those qualities that you're you're coachable you have the hunger and you are the guy to 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 build the business i think uh, investors will believe you and and that's where i think having the conviction and having the the the, the, the strong thoughts that why you are you're building something which will kind of uh, succeed is is very important for you as a founder to have as a as a personal quality and a, and a trait so thank you so much for for that uh, ishmael what i'll do is i think we are uh, closer to the clock and what i'll do is uh, open up the floor for maybe couple of our uh, of our audience if they have questions they can they can raise their hands we unmute and they quickly introduce themselves and we can bring the questions to you so i'm i'm done with my questions to ismail uh, audience if you have questions raise your hand uh, either emmanuel or myself will will unmute you you can introduce yourself and and point the question to uh, kim uh, i i think uh, you had raised your hand uh, i have brought you on stage so if you can uh, quickly introduce yourself and point a question to to ismail hi yeah so uh, good evening my name is kim uh, from uganda um funny love uh, very very similar um in terms of um i do last mile distribution here um and i have done for what the, about the last 3 4 years um and similarly come from consulting background now probably my question uh, would be around look you know as you expand especially within cpg and with some of the 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 companies you've talked about like people like uh, png and the rest it's very difficult to manage margin so how, how have you looked at uh, managing profitability as you grow and that's something that your investors have looked at um, a lot or um, has it been more of let's focus on growth and kind of come back to profitability later it's a, it's a very good question so myself when i started shari we were in 2020 and 2020 and 2021 where <laughs> i think the the peak of uh, of the bubble uh, when uh, investors were only looking for a top line and asking you to uh, grow as fast as possible without uh, taking into account the bottom line and uh, and the unit economics uh, so when i started to be frank i wasn't looking at all at uh, the margins uh, and what was important uh, was my ability to keep adding new clients and delivering more goods but then as everybody knows 2022 happened uh, the war in ukraine the raise of interest rates uh, and money uh, moving from the vc asset class to other classes and obviously <laughs> the same investors who used to say grow fast started started asking for for paths to profitability so today uh and to answer your question we had to find solutions to improve our take rates 
and uh, be able at least to cover our logistic costs. And the way we did it was by uh, meeting the, 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 the suppliers and telling them, hey guys, look, we are a digital distributor and we are the only player in the market able to give you data about uh, where your goods are sold, at what frequency, with what other categories, and uh, when before you were blind on what was going on, today you have a clear visibility, and that has a cost. And the cost is the fact that you need to help me grow my revenue for at least cover my, 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 my costs related to logistics. Um, so, so yes, you have to start by subsidizing your company uh, because nobody will trust you if you don't get the data. Once you have the data, then you have to use this data to start monetizing it and ask for better take rates. Ethan, I've, I've invited you to speak, so you can unmute yourself and point a question. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, my name is Ethan Bamperi, and I'm the found, co-founder of um, Campanichi, which is a technology company trying to help businesses uh, grow in, Afri- in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, my for for your sites today. Um, between the time when you started and the time when you when you raised, um, uh, how I wanted to know how, one how long uh, was that, and did you ever look to to raising outside of Morocco? So I understand you said your first investor was Orange, uh, who was organizing something which was a competition in in Morocco, I presume. Did you look to, or did you actually uh, raise any money outside um, of Morocco? Uh, thank you very much. And if you don't mind, you can also give your insight on, uh, um, uh, I'm currently in Uganda, and uh, I'm asking because we are looking to to get out of Uganda and maybe go look for investment in other places. So if you could give your insights on that, that would be helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, again, between the time I started and the time I raised, it was very short. But again, because we were in 2020 and 2020 wasn't an example, a good example of, uh, 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 at least it's not representative of real life. Back at that time, money was free and you used to speak with VCs and after 10, 15 minutes, they were saying yes. And two days later, the money was hitting your bank account. But that was the that was a normal. I think we moved back to what is normal. And today um, you have to bootstrap at the very beginning. Uh, I think unless it's love money and then you can use easily raise money. I think you, you need at least to show something before being able to to raise something and it, that will that may take uh, six uh, up to 12 months um, raising outside of your country is obviously the the, the, the uh, a good decision mainly because um, uh, investors love new environments uh, investors love to have diversity geographically diversified portfolios and investors want to add a pin on a new country. And what they are looking for are people from these countries uh, that master the countries that are born and raised there, that are you sometimes 
Western educated or at least who are able to communicate the same way the investors communicate that have the same logic. Um, and uh, and uh, again, they are willing to take risks because it's a kind of curiosity for them. It's a way for them to learn more about the country. So again, the investment size won't be big, but at least it will be a ticket to learn more about what you are doing and about your country. And they start using you as an ambassador for the country, especially if your country is at in, an inflection point and they need to get to know more and they need to have a local partner, they will do it. And myself, I remember I had a Japanese uh, investor who just wanted to have a, a, a Moroccan friend because he liked Morocco and he wanted to touch base with someone, again, in Morocco who could help him out navigate through the country. Great. And I thank, uh, thank, thank Ishmael for, for taking that question. I think uh, we have one last question before we wind down. Uh, we have uh, Adeola Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin, over to you. You're the last question for this evening. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to uh, Hindsight Ventures for uh, coming up with this platform. It's really been impactful. I want to also say well done to Ishmael for uh, the insights that you have given us this evening. I just have two very quick questions, please. The first being that it seems that there's this notion about second, third-time founders being the one to be successful, not first-time founders. What do you think about this particular notion? Because I think for you now, I think the general notion is that there's going, there has to be a learning curve that mostly more often than not, first-time founders are not likely to succeed. What's your opinion of this notion? That's number one. Then number two, I want to say big well done to you on the, I hear you say 200,000 uh, 200, stores that you've onboarded in Morocco. I just want to ask, is this a figure that you've also been replicating, that you've been able to replicate in other countries? And how easy has this been to replicate in other countries beyond Morocco? Thank you. Yeah, I spoke about 200,000 stores, but that was the universe of stores in, in, in Morocco. Uh, myself, I could onboard 30,000, which is quite okay because it's 15% uh, of the total market. And we're still uh, onboarding new, new clients. And if, to the question, if we could be, if we were able to duplicate easily in other countries, the answer is no. It was it was it wasn't easy at all, and it requires local expertise. So again, my 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 advice to anyone is to first crack the case in your country, make sure that it works well in your country before moving to somewhere else. No, the question about being a repeat founder is, I believe that you learn more by failing than by succeeding, and I think someone who has and again, it's paradoxical, but someone who has failed is more likely to succeed than someone who has succeeded to succeed again. It's crazy, but it's the case. Because what you learn by failing is something that you never forget and is something that you use to end up uh, succeeding. So yes, I advise anyone to try because by trying, you never lose. You either win or learn. 
and whatever you learn is being used to win again. Thank you, guys. Uh, it Thank was you. a pleasure to be here with you tonight. And Thank uh, you. And I am available on LinkedIn. If you have any more questions, happy to answer them on LinkedIn. No, thank you. Thank you, Ishmael, for, for being patient, uh, taking my questions uh, and, and also the, the follow-up questions coming in from the audience. I'm sure that uh, whoever attended live benefited a lot from this. Uh, you're going to get a lot of LinkedIn requests. But at the same time, this goes uh, on our uh, podcast handles, whether on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, in the next 24 hours. And I'm sure that there are many more listeners who are going to tune in and, and benefit from this. So thank you for, for the chat. Uh, and have a nice evening. Uh, for, the, for the audience, uh, this is Ajay Ramasubramaniam, uh, co-founder and CEO of Hindsight Ventures, and also your host of Founders 52. We are, we are with you every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. East Africa time, with one founder from the African continent talking about his or her journey, building their venture, building in Africa, for Africa. And through Founders 52, what we are trying to do is inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs, inspire more people to, to take up entrepreneurship by listening to, to journeys of venture building of founders from different walks of life, building different kinds of companies so that uh, they take inspiration and they're able to go on to build their company because entrepreneurship is the way forward for emerging economies. Uh, this is what is going to bring about economic development. It's going to bring about uh, new economy jobs. It is going to improve the quality of life and so many things good, which will actually kind of bring the overall regional and, and continental development. So through Founders 52 at Hindsight Ventures, this is a very small role that we are playing in trying to inspire people to, to take up entrepreneurship because one way or the other, it, it fits into what we do at Hindsight Ventures, accelerating entrepreneurs. So thank you so much. Uh, look forward to another wonderful episode of Founders 52 next Wednesday, 9 p.m. East Africa time. Do log in if you're here. If you're listening to this on one of our podcast channels or if you're an entrepreneur who has many more entrepreneur friends, tell them to tune in. We'd love to see that. Thank you. Good night. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. 